You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everyone, this episode of An Eternity of Basketball is a part of the Globally Ballin Podcast Network, a subsidiary of the Globally Ballin Media Network. For this show and other shows like it, such as the Globally Ballin Podcast, as well as projects like it, such as original articles and video work, visit globallyballin.com now. You're listening to the newest episode of An Eternity of Basketball. In this episode, our hosts, Charlie, Sid, and Noel, are joined with the head coach of Hanebra San Miguel, Tim Cohn. Thank you all for listening, and enjoy. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe to it, as well as to give it a five-star rating and a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, to the show. Okay, coach. Uh, welcome to our to our little show. Now we we formed this uh, this this program of ours. Uh, we call it an eternity of basketball. That's a line that we got from the late Joe Cantada. Mm-hmm. I use that in the call. I remember it well. I used to mm-hmm. That's right. And basically, well, the reason we did that is we want to throw people back to the '80s and the '90s. That's that's the thrust of this show. It's a reminiscing show, a nostalgia type of show. We're, we're not the young guys in the group. So the young guys can take care of the, the current goings on. So they can take care of the current events. We, we, we want to go back and throw people back and, and, and reminisce. So okay. we want to focus some more about back then. Of course, we will need to touch on, on current uh, stuff because you still are a coach in the PBA. But we'll ask you more questions probably. We'll focus more on the 80s and 90s um, and then ask about personalities from that time. So... You know, you'll probably also need to to reach back into your memory bank. Uh, well, I've been I've been working a lot on lately, looking back uh, on a lot of things. So I'm kind of refreshed a little bit. Right. Yeah. On a lot you, of you things that, that went on, but not the '80s so much. Uh, but the <laughs> '90s, I've been refreshed on the '90s. The '80s is a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna take you there, though, Coach. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by asking yeah, so you about your. Uh, are we starting already, Sid? We're recording. I'm still trying to get it on FB Live, but uh, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. I'll, I'll let you just get the ball rolling here with um, not Sorry, very many people know. Um, are, we go- are we good? All right. Not, not anyway, very many go ahead, people go ahead. know, Coach. Not very many people know, Coach, that you actually studied here in the Philippines. Uh, what was that like uh, back in the day, uh, studying in a foreign country? Well, I actually grew up here. I mean, yeah. uh, this is actually my home. I came here when I was nine years old. So uh, I spent basically my whole life here. My first year was, uh, 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 I stayed in uh, Belair Quezon and went to the uh, went to the public school for a year. And uh, before finally I, I came, my, my parents said, well, we, we're going to have to move back to Manila. And then I went to the international school of, the, of Manila there in, in Bel Air, uh, in Makati. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, I really don't know of anything else but growing up here. It was not like I have a chance to, you know, say, compare how it was to be in the States and how it was to be here. To me, all I remember is, is being here, being here my whole life and growing up uh, 
up here in, in this in this culture. And, and how so, is your Tagalog? I mean, you, you yeah. probably picked up a language really early. Compared to my, to it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. Um, <laughs> I, I, apparently, and I'm told this by my sister and my mom, that when I first came and I was nine years old, I was absolutely fluent. I mean, I would talk all the time. I had all my, you know, all my buddies, at, at, and I picked it up very quickly being young and also going to the public school. Although at that time, public schools were taught in English. So uh, it wasn't like I was forced to do it, but it was just really with my friends. Um, but then when I went back down to the international school, I mean, everybody start, spoke English. Even even the Pinoys spoke English in the That's school. Right. No one really spoke Tagalog. And so I just kind of lost it as, as I, as I kind of grew up. And uh, it's one of my big, big regrets. And one of the things that I've really impressed on my children is that they must learn Tagalog. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to say all three of my kids are, are fluent in Tagalog. Great. Uh, my, my next question would be, was you, uh, do you have a question, Charlie? Or, sorry, go ahead. I was going to jump already into uh, PBA because you were here when the PBA was in its early years. And, and uh, were you a fan at an early age of, of the PBA and basketball in general? I was a fan of Mika. I had never... I had never watched an NBA game, whether on TV or ever. I didn't watch an NBA game until I was 18 years old. And that was the first NBA game I ever saw. I, I remember we went to, uh, uh, my mother's sister lived in Los Angeles. And so we went there for summer in Los Angeles. And it just happened to be right at the very end. And my first game I remember so well was um, Phoenix versus Boston. In the in the finals, and that was the first NBA game I ever watched. And uh, Paul Westfall, I think, was with the Phoenix. And um, before that, I'd never watched a game. So I grew up totally on on Mika. Uh, mm -hmm. I was a huge, huge Toyota fan. Um, I was a huge Moralco fan before that. And uh, I hated Crispa. Oh, I hated Crispa to, with a passion. Although I, I became close to Baby Dalupan later on. Uh, he was like my nemesis, you know. I, I hated Baby Daluma. <laughs> he always beat our Toyota or Morocco teams. And uh, actually, the, as the story goes, if you don't mind me just going on yeah, a little go bit, right ahead. Um, my best friend at that time, his name was Stanley Fields. He had an older sister, and his older sister was dating Fort Acuna. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we got because because of, we, he would come over to the girlfriend's house all the time and so we got to know Fort really well because I was always over there this is we were living in uh, San Lorenzo village in in, uh, in Makati mm -hmm. at the time and uh, I used to be there because he lived like five houses down away from me I used to be over there all the time Fort would come over he would bring a couple of players sometimes that, uh, with him and then we just he just started inviting us to practices so we got to see a bunch of Morocco practices. We actually went to a movie at Morocco Theater with the Morocco team. And that was, you know, Mon and Mon Fernandez and Francis Zarnais was there, Jimmy Mariano, Big Boy Reynoso. Uh, Mon and, 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 and Francis were the young kids. Uh, and even Jorsky was the young kids at that time. They were the, the, the new kids on the block at Morocco. So I've had a huge history. Uh, uh, watching, watching Toyota and, and especially Morocco growing up, 
And so I just kind of went all the way through. Who were your favorite players, coach? I mean, at the time, I, you know, who were you guys um, you wanted to be? Like, I know you played basketball as well, eventually. I, you know, I mean, I'm, I was just like everybody else. I was a huge Jaworski fan. But my, my real guy was Mon Fernandez. Um, I, I, Mon was my, my, my big hero. Um, he, he went on to, uh, what, Manila Beer? Was it Manila Beer he went on to? And then Jaworski went on to uh, uh, Gilby's, I think Gilby's, it was. Yeah. And, and so we kind of had to kind of part ways at that time, and I became a Manila, Manila Beer fan. Um, and, uh, but I was also a big Francis Arnais fan because he was a guard and I was a guard, and I wanted to emulate him. Um, and I also, you know, it just for some reason, we were all at the international school. For some reason, we were all fans of Yo-Yo Martinez. And we were always <laughs> imitating his layup during our practices. And, but we were all fans of Yo-Yo. So uh, he was a big impact uh, on us when, when we were young. And how, how did you, uh, so when you, what was your first coaching? Did you coach before the PBA? Um you know, I went to college. I ended up going to college in the States. And I played a couple of years of college ball. And then I tried to walk in, walk on a Division One team. Um, and then I went back, after college, I went back to San Francisco. And I, I joined some pro-am tournaments. And uh, uh, I was able to dabble in some, into some assistant coaching at that time. But generally, no, it was never really a goal of mine to be a coach. Um, I was working at a bank in San Francisco after college. And I hated it. Um, and after about uh, eight months, I called my mom and I said, mom, you know, I want to come home. And uh, of course I was the youngest and she was empty nesting at her house. And I mean, mom and dad. And so they, please come on home. You know, you can entertain us. So I did, I came back, but the first year I back, I was back in Quezon province, but this time in Southern Quezon in the Bundok Peninsula, uh, just mm -hmm. south, south of Lucena. And I lived there for a year uh, with my parents, um, and my dad was working down there. So I lived there and didn't live in Manila. Uh, so I was there for the first year, and I wanted to be a writer. That was my big thing. Mom, I want to come back to write. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be the next Hemingway or William Faulkner. And uh, so I wrote for about a year, worked, in my, worked with my dad down there, and then uh, ran out of money, kind of got bored, uh, met my wife-to-be in one of my sojourns up to Manila. You know, we used to take R&R &R up in Manila. And one time I went out with a friend and met my wife. And uh, after that, I didn't want to live in Manila. I didn't want to live in the province anymore. I wanted to be here and hang out with her all the time. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I blame her for ruining my writing career. She was, <laughs> was all her fault. Um, so, but we dated for seven years before I finally, we finally got married. How long were you back in Manila at the time? I mean, you said you came back from, from uh, Quezon, then you went to Manila already. What year was that? Uh, um, that was like 1980, late 19, really late 1982, early 1983 mm -hmm. when okay. I came back. I graduated college 19, uh, you know, June or May or June 1980. And uh, like I said, I spent a little bit of time in San Francisco uh, working and hating, hating life. I didn't, didn't start living until I got back here. During the time when you were working in a bank, did you ever, did basketball ever recur to you at, at any point? I mean, did you think that if I'd stayed in the Philippines, I might have done something in basketball or did it just totally escape you while you were working in that bank? 
Well, I was like I said, I was really into writing at that time, and but I was still playing basketball. I mean, I was you know playing around the city. I was joining leagues. Uh, 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 actually, played in a in a, in a Phil Am league uh, in San Francisco. Um, so I was playing a lot, uh, and I was also picking up the game of tennis at that point too. Um, so I was kind of going between basketball and and uh, tennis, um, but. I wasn't very good in tennis, that's for sure. But uh, um, like I said, I was doing a little bit of coaching there. I coached teams in the in the in the, in the pro am leagues, and and uh, um, but I really didn't think about coaching until much later. Until actually, I ran into uh, in one of those. Uh, well, when I came back to Manila, I started living back in Manila. I went to a, a U.S. ambassador's party. Um, I'd never been to one before, never been to one since. But for some reasons, I got into that party. I don't know how, but there in the party was Fred Wittensen. Uh, and uh, that's how we hooked up when we started seeing each other again. Um, uh, we went to high school together and we spent, uh, when I was in college, uh, believe it or not, he was in the boarding school in the same campus uh, going to high school. He had left Manila and gone to a boarding school. It just happened that I went to college at the same uh, uh, high school that he was at. So we saw each other there as well. But we were never close growing up because there was like, you know, we're five, six years uh, difference in age. Um, and he was a little pipsqueak, you know, running around at IS and we were you know, beating him up all the time. Uh, and um, then he became this, you know, incredibly big time uh, swimmer in, in USC and uh, I mean, which was the number one program in the whole country. It was, you know, he had an amazing, amazing career at swimming and uh, he became the, the real stud down. We couldn't kick him around anymore. <laughs> but from being a big, uh, Toyota, as you said, Toyota fan, Juan Fernandez mm -hmm. fan. So that's that beer house in was 1984, and then you know, then he moved on to Tandoi, etc. But then you find yourself all of a sudden as part of the PBA because you're sitting on the panel, yes. And that was again, that sorry, was you're Fred. vintage. That was Fred uh, Uitensu, he was the one who got me into vintage. He uh, alerted, uh, uh, well, at that time, I was going to a lot of games with him to Alaska, uh, the Alaska games, uh. Uh, first coach that I started watching was Tudo Manzona, and mm -hmm. Matt Canzon was was coaching for a while, and then Boggs. Uh, and I, I during that at, while Boggs was coaching, I started working on the panel. Uh, Fred had told uh, Bobon Velez mm -hmm. that uh, you know I was a basketball guy. I grew up playing. I played college ball, and, and I knew the I knew the you know the the, the league, and I knew the players from before. And, and it might be interesting to see if I could do you know do some panel work and so I went there he called and I went to a tryout and uh, um, and they, they decided to put me on I think it was the worst decision they ever made I mean I was terrible uh, I knew the game but I didn't know how to how to how to, how to say it but uh, it was a lot of fun you know and I had a chance to meet with all you know to work with all the greats you know Pingoy Pengson and and and, and uh, uh, Sev uh, of course, Joe, um, and, and it was it was a lot of fun working with all those guys back in the day. Um, and just over time, because I was just so involved in the league, I just started getting involved with Alaska as well. And that's how I got to be a head coach. 
Well, can we dwell a bit more on that? I'm sure you guys are curious. <laughs> Noel wants to know. You know, I mean, you come from you come from uh, the panel, and then all of a sudden there's a coaching carousel going on in Alaska. It's one coach after the other, and all of a sudden um, you come in. How, how does that happen? How how do, how do you end up as a coach? Well, I was coaching the international school, my alma mater team. I was coaching the international school, um, and I wasn't getting paid for it. I mean, it wasn't a higher position. I just did it because I, I, you know, I had a lot of time on my hands and they needed a coach and I knew the, uh, uh, the athletic director. And so I, I took over one of the teams and uh, um, I'll never forget that we, we played, I don't know if anybody's interested in, in hearing this, but we played our first game in Clark Air Base against Wagner High School. And uh, we were down 32 points at halftime. That was the first official game I ever coached. We were down 32 points at halftime. Uh, those poor kids I had. I came into that halftime and I threw my play board. I threw down a, uh, a locker. And I mean, I was all over those guys. And, and I feel, still feel bad about that to this day, how I, I got on those young kids. But uh, um, we ended up beating that team later in the year and breaking a, like a 53-game winning streak. And... We went to the finals and played them again, got beat in the final, but we made it to the finals. I lost my first seven games as a coach. We lost our first seven games, and then we ended up winning six of our next eight and uh, made it to the playoffs just barely, and then we did well in the playoffs and won the semifinals. And Fred came to watch the semifinal game, and he actually came in and talked to the players before the game. And he had an incredible speech, and we were the underdogs going into that game, and we just – our guys were just diving all over the floor. We were playing incredible defense, and we upset this team and went back and went to the finals and played in the finals. So I, I, I think Fred watched that game and said, hey, maybe this guy can coach. You know, they're kids, but maybe he can coach. And, uh, um, and so I started off as uh, – yeah, there was a carousel going on. Uh, um, it's really a long story, but uh, – uh, bottom line is I started consulting first. Uh, they, they moved away from books and they hired the general manager uh, to be an interim coach. He wasn't really a basketball guy. So they asked me to help him out. And Fred asked me to help him out. So I did. And then I, over about half a conference, I became an assistant coach. And then after about another conference, I became the head coach. And my import when I took over the team, lo and behold, was Sean Chambers. He had, as a, he had come in as a replacement. Uh, um, and then about after his third or fourth game, I was hired as the head coach. So my incumbent import at that time was Sean Chambers. So I can never take the credit for recruiting Sean. He was already there when I got there, but he was the only incumbent player that we had. He was the only player I had that was actually on that Grand Slam team in 1996. Yeah, well, now you're here. You're the you guys coach have been hand-in-hand, hand, huh? Yeah. You, well, Coach, my, my question to you is, you've been, you, you were handed the reins in 1989 yes. um, with just uh, experience coaching um, a young team, not even in the pros, and now you're in this level. What was it like for you, adjusting to the likes of the people around you? I mean, you had Baby Dalupan on one end, playing Coach Robert Jaworski on the other end. I mean, it must have been daunting to beat up against well, these legends. Yeah, Norman Black actually was winning the Grand Slam that year in 1989, the year I joined. Uh, he was a Grand – they won the – San Miguel won all three conferences and won the Grand Slam. 
so he was like the guy at that moment that, uh, you know, he was setting the bar by winning that Grand Slam at that time. <clears throat> it was very intimidating because uh, the team I took over also uh, had like five guys that were older than me at the time. You know, Abed was there, Abed Gadabin, Yoya Biderman, Ricky Velosa, um, uh, Ray Lazaro. Uh, it, was a, it was a veteran team. Um, and uh, uh, there, was, there was a lot of, you know, I wanted to come in there and treat them like I did those kids, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and beat them up. And there was a lot of resistance in the beginning. And, uh, uh, but, you know, to my great fortune, uh, Fred Oyutensu uh, really backed me up. I mean, he was really in my corner. And, you know, he said to me, the first thing he said to me is, Tim, we want you to run this team like a business. We want it to be professional. And that has been the way that he has, you know, run it from, the, from, from day one up to, you know, yesterday. It's always been about uh, us being professionals and doing it the right way and, 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 play, and doing it with integrity. And so um, that was his message from the very beginning. And I remember my first game, and I was just saying this to uh, is it uh, Miko Reyes. Um, my first game, you know, it was in the ultra. Uh, we were playing in ultra. If, you, if people know that in the the locker rooms are kind of underneath, they're kind of like That's in right. the basement, mm -hmm. and then you have to walk up the stairs to go onto the court. And halfway up the stairs is a doorway that goes out to like the, the, the car path or the, you know, where the cars pass. And so it was halftime of my very first game and I was walking up the, I was walking up the stairs. And I, as I was going up, I looked to my right out the, out the door uh, and the thing, and I had two of my players were sitting there and it was two minutes to go before, half, before the game started. They were sitting there smoking cigarettes um, <laughs> at, at halftime during the game. They were out there smoking cigarettes. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it was more in 1989 through the 80s. It was almost like a, like a, a hobby. We were practicing at 6 to 8 in the evening because we had guys that were still doing day jobs in 1989. Some of the guys were still doing day jobs. We had to wait to practice to 6 so guys could come to after work to come and, and go to practice. Well, not all of them, but, you know, like the 11th, 12th, 13th men, you know, like practice players and stuff, they were having day jobs. They weren't working. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money thrown around at that time. It wasn't big time salaries. A few, but I mean, big for that time. People would laugh at it now. Uh, but it was uh, it was not a, a real, you know, I mean, it, it was the 90s started to change that. In the 90s, the, 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 the salaries went up, uh, the TV revenue went up, uh, you know, everything started getting bigger and, and uh, um, I think the players started to realize that how special they were and what how special you know it was that they were able to play and, and they really wanted to keep those jobs so it was you know the, the work ethic really started to step up the conditioning really started to step up and uh, it became a lot more professional into the 90s interesting I have a question here, Coach. Um, who start, Who imbibed the triangle offense first? Was it you or Phil Jackson? Because you pretty much started at the pretty much the same time using that triangle offense. No, it was definitely Phil. Um, I used the Bulls. <laughs> I used the Bulls video that we used to. Uh, we tried to steal the video from Clark Airbase. Do you remember the Armed Forces Network? I don't know if you guys remember that. If you're too too young. <laughs> 
FEN uh, coach. Yeah. I think yeah, it was yeah, called yeah, FEN. Network. But before that, it was the Armed Forces Network, right. AMRTS. Yeah. Then it became FEN. And right. uh, we couldn't get it locally unless you, like, put up a big antenna on the top of your house. Or I lived in a yeah. building at that time. We Boulevard. We used to go up and put this big, huge antenna up there. And we get this grainy picture of, uh, of Clark Air Base uh, 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 TV. And so they would show the Bulls. They would show the NBA game of the week and whatever at that time. And so I would, I would put them on Betamax, not – not VHS, but Betamax. And we all would record on Betamax and then I would fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind. And that's how I figured out how to learn um, the, the triangle. And uh, to any coaches that may be listening right now, I have one really important word of advice. Do not teach what you do not know. And I, I was teaching the triangle and I didn't know it. And I was trying to learn it myself and I had no idea, and I was trying to do it through 92 and 93, and basically almost got fired in 93 because we were so bad trying to run that, that triangle. But uh, uh, we persevered, and we, we, we figured it out, and then we, uh, we started getting something out of it in 94, 95, and of course into 96. I didn't meet Tex Winter until 1999. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I had talked to Tex Winter. So, um, the Bulls basically started the triangle, and I think in '89. And Tex was, of course, running the triangle since 1962. So uh, he he wrote the book 1961 or 1962, I think it was, when he wrote the book. I have the book here. It's nicer looking now than it was then, but this is the book. Triple post offense, it? yeah. Triple yeah, post, triple post, post offense by. And this basically was written. The original copy was written in 1961, I believe. Well, 1962. I have to look it up again, but um, I always keep that book on my on my desk all at all times. I've been doing it through the years. But uh, um, so Tex was running this thing since 1960. So and then Phil adopted it from him uh, during their summer league uh, time together when Doug Collins was still the coach of the Chicago Bulls, as we saw in the last dance. Uh, coach, why do you think? Um... Not more coaches have picked up the triangle, considering uh, Phil Jackson's success with it, uh, with the Bulls. Um, how come? Yeah, and the Lakers. Do yeah. Don't forget the Lakers. Too. Oh, yeah, and the Lakers. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was, yeah. that was Phil, guys. too. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was <laughs> Phil, too. Yeah. And we yeah. won. And the last, uh, yeah. If you think about it, through the years, you know, I, I ran it in the, in the pure text form from basically 1992 to or 1993 maybe it'll be the purest form it'll be 1993 to 2016 so basically we ran it you know for 23 years and we won 18 championships running the triangle as well i mean the pure version bulls version laker version of that text winner triangle if you're not running text winners triangle then you are not running the triangle uh, i'm going to make that clear you have to be running texas triangle to be running the triangle um, so we did that purely for, for, for that length of time and won 18 championships. So, yeah, I, I think that's a really, really legitimate question. Why didn't more coaches run it if it was always so successful? We had great success there. They had great success in the NBA. College teams were running it, uh, especially women's teams were really successful in the triangle. But 
And I think there's a lot of theories out there, but I think, number one, it's counterintuitive to what most offenses are like. In other words, it takes a lot of breaking down of players and, uh, and building them back up uh, for them to really get a feel for it. It's a lengthy process. It doesn't happen right away, although I think Dennis Robbins said he, he learned it in one day. Um, and uh, I don't know who that was, but that's what he said. Um, but it, I just think that it also takes an, an enormous amount of uh, patience and enormous amount of repetitions over and over and over again. And it's been known as a coach killer because a lot of coaches have tried it. And mm -hmm. it's one of those off, it's hard to explain, one of those offenses where you'll get to a certain level and you kind of won't know where to go from there. And uh, so you get stuck for a moment and it won't work for you because you got stuck. And then you'll revert back to what you did or what's comfort for you. So you kind of go away from it. So you go back to your comfort zone a little bit and then maybe, oh, I'll go back to the triangle. But then you end up going back to the basic level again. You never jump to the, to the, to the, to the higher levels. And uh, um, I just think coaches don't have the, the backing behind them to be able to jump to that next level. Like I told you earlier, I almost got fired in 93 because I was trying to run the triangle. And Mr. Extensive Fred didn't want me to run it. Because he told me at the time, you, you shouldn't be running this thing. You know, it's, it's, it's not working for you. You're, you're a better coach than that. And, uh, you know, um, but we stuck with it and we persevered. And just after he said that, we started to win. And, uh, um, and we started proving to him that, that, that we could win with it. But uh, if he hadn't had that patience, if he hadn't stuck with me through that time, then I never would have gotten to the level that we did with the triangle. And I think that is really the problem. Cotton Fitzsimmons, Fitzsimmons uh, mm -hmm. tried to do it uh, and, and couldn't get it done. Jim Clemens in Dallas tried to yeah. do it and couldn't get it done. Uh, uh, Kurt Rambis tried to get it done. Derek Fisher. Uh, in the New York Knicks tried to get it done in a pure sense with, with Phil Jackson overlooking him, and they still couldn't get it done. Uh, the New York press would not give him enough patience to allow him to get to that level where it was going to be effective. So it was a very, it's a very interesting dynamic. It's an excellent question. It's a hard question to answer, um, but you would think, you know, you would think that we'd all be running the triangle. I mean, look what, you know, yeah, look what Steve Kerr did with the Warriors. I mean, everybody's doing what Steve Kerr did. You know, uh, why didn't everybody do what 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 uh, Texan Field did? I, I, it's hard to hard to fathom, but it's it's there. And um, um, but it's 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 not an easy office to learn. But once you learn it, it seems easy. It seems easy. Yeah, coach, is it correct to say? Sorry, go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, is it correct? Would it be correct to say, sorry, Noel, is it correct to say that you have to have the right personnel to run that type of, of uh, offense? Because, you know, absolutely it's, not. It's no, no, it can be it can be done with anybody. Huh? It can be done with anybody. Yeah. I mean, that was Texas big thing is that you in college, he ran his through his point guard. He had a really, really good point guard at Kansas State. And they ran it all through through Kobe. I mean, through the point guard. And then you look at the Lakers. I mean, look at the Bulls. They ran it through Michael and Scotty. And then they changed the team around, and they still ran it through Michael and Scotty. Uh, and then with the Lakers, they did it through Shaq, the center position, uh, totally through Shaq. And they had Lamar Odom as their 6'10 initiator in the backcourt. 
Um, and then when Shaq left, they went back to running it through Kobe and then Powell and, and Andrew Bynum. So I'm not sure you can say that. And again, we've run it through 23 years of doing it. We did it with Alaska, with that group. Um, and that's a group that we had to build because we didn't have that team at all. We had to build it through the draft, you know, getting um, uh, Johnny and, and, and Jeffrey and then through trades, getting JoJo and, and Baum, getting Porch William through the draft. Uh, and then going to um, Sam Mig where uh, you know, we had the core already there in place, and we had to teach that core uh, from ground zero. You know, PJ, James, Ping, uh, you know, and, and, and luckily we had Joe that helped us do that, but, you know, it was a whole new core. So I hear that, Charlie. I hear that a lot. Oh, you have to have a Michael Jordan. Oh, you have mm -hmm. to have a, a Kobe Bryant, you know. And, yeah. frankly, I just think it's a, a big pile of doo doo doo. <laughs> okay. All right. Actually, actually, Coach, I was about to say your biggest star in, in, in the 90s for Alaska, Giorgio Lastimosa, said he hated the triangle when you were starting to introduce it. Well, it, he was like Michael. I mean, when, yeah. when Michael, when MJ was with Doug Collins, every play was run through Michael right. Jordan. So when you come in with a with an equal sharing offense, it's like, hey, I'm used to get, you know, 30, 40 touches, 50 touches a game, and now it might be 20. And it, your immediate reaction is, hey, you know, you should put the ball in the hands. I'm the best player. Why would you let that guy shoot it when he's only going to shoot 30% when I'm going to shoot it 60%? And that's the attitude that those players have. But you, you know, the, the thing that you have to make them realize is that one is, I love this expression, one is too small of a number for greatness. You don't do things on your own. You can't achieve greatness on your own. And, and Michael proved that. He, six years, he did not win a championship. Mm -hmm. And six years, they were saying he would never be a Magic. He would never be a Larry, uh, uh, a Larry Bird and make his teammates better and, and be a championship player because he was too selfish. He always did everything by himself. We had that problem also with, imagine James, James Yap. James, when he was with Ryan, you know, Ryan would run every play through James, and James would get all these touches. And James was such a nice guy, he never complained. He never complained. Never complained. It was amazing. But JoJo complained. You know, JoJo had that kind of personality. He's going to yeah. complain. Michael Jordan's going to complain. Kobe was complaining a lot in the beginning. But he, he was really angry that everything was running through Shaq and not through him in the beginning. And, uh, and he was happy when Phil Jackson left and he was able to play for Rudy Tomjanovich. And then they were terrible. And he goes, oh, no, I need Phil back. I want to run the triangle again. So he asked for Phil back. And they cut the triangle. They got Powell and Andrew Bynum, Lamar Odom. And lo and behold, he won another couple championships. So um, the funny thing about the triangle is that there are guys who are resistant in the beginning to run it. We always had that resistance with imports oftentimes coming in because they wanted the ball in their hands all the time. But we were able to show them video of Kobe and Michael and, you know, doing different things and showing them how they could do it. So, you know, they kind of – that's how we got their buy-in. But there was always that resistance in the beginning. But I tell you, at the end, if every player I can think of – and I'm sure there might be an exception here or there – but every player I can think of that ran the triangle with us, every import that ran the triangle with us, 
when it was all done and, and over, when they were finished with us or they moved on to another team or they retired, they loved the triangle. They loved playing in the triangle. They really did. And I can honestly say that. And you look, you hear about Michael and Scotty and all those guys talking about the triangle now. No, um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. The thing that brings, I think, most of all, is it brings great camaraderie and it brings great chemistry because everybody's involved. Everybody's involved every moment of the, of the play. And so you don't feel left out. You don't feel like, oh, I'm being overshadowed by Michael. I'm being overshadowed by JoJo. I'm being overshadowed by Johnny. There's, there's a sharing that goes on. And because of that sharing, there's the chemistry and a camaraderie that, that develops. And I think that, that really helps the team eventually. Coach, what made you, what made JoJo change his mind? I mean, what was, uh, when did he finally winning. sign on? Winning. Winning. It's, it's all about winning. You know, uh, he saw that they were winning. Um, it was, you know, Johnny had come to the team. Bone Hawkins had come to the team. Uh, you know, those guys were great players in their own right. Uh, you know, we, we picked up uh, uh, John John Cardell was there for a while. Um, and, you know, Portuino eventually got drafted along with Merwin Costello and Chris Bellado. But we started to put the pieces around JoJo. Before we did that, when I first came, and when we first got JoJo from Pure Foods through a trade with Boy Cabahu, which was negotiated totally by, between Mr. Oitensu and Mr. Buhai, uh, we, I had no, it was strictly between the two of them, they made that trade. And it was a great trade for us because we got a, a marquee player. Elmer Boykabag was just the nicest guy to have. And he was a great player, a great shooter. But he wasn't that marquee guy that Jojo had, Jojo was. And if you remember, Bong, uh, uh, Bong Alvarez had torn his Achilles injury. So he was out almost the whole year. And so it was, and I remember this very distinctly. I, I wish I knew who did it, but there was someone in the press that referred to us at that time as Jojo and the 11 Little Indians. Now that was our team. It was Jojo and the 11 Little Indians. We did not go down the floor without Jojo touching the ball. It was not allowed. Jojo had to touch the ball. I mean, uh, he was so absolutely dominant in that team. And um, I thought that was a great – I was upset with it at the time. But looking back, it was a great description of who we were, Jojo and 11 Little Indians. Um, <laughs> And uh, we had a play that we ran for JoJo probably 60, 70 times a game. I mean, it was amazing. And he would score. But it was a struggle being, you know, if you stop JoJo, I mean, if you, the whole game plan was about stopping JoJo. So if he didn't get it done, um, you know, he, he, you know, we didn't get it done. So it became harder and harder and harder for him to play. So when we got a Johnny and we got a Bong and we started getting the pieces and we started doing the sharing in the triangle, Suddenly the game got easier and we started winning. And that's what convinced JoJo. And I can tell you what, that's exactly the same thing that happened to Michael. Michael started to mm -hmm. see yeah. that, hey, we can win this way. And uh, I can, you know, and, and for, first and foremost, JoJo is a winner. I mean, that's all he cares about is winning. Um, he doesn't care about numbers and points and whatever. He wants to win. Coach, yeah, um, Joe, and there's another thing that Jojo uh, Jolas talked about. What did you? When we interviewed him a few days ago, uh, since we're on the topic of uh, of Jojo right now, 
and it was about his centennial team experience. Yeah, the angry game. Yes. <laughs> you, you were, were you, you able read, to read did, that? You, did you read it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <Okay>. So. <laughs> Because he, well, he, he specifically told us to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not, not, just, not just the game, the whole trip to, to Bangkok. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it was the hardest thing I ever did, coaching that team, without a doubt. I mean, uh, it, it still brings back uh, a lot of emotion for me to talk about it. Um, uh, it seemed like such a failure. Uh, because we didn't win the gold, and we really set out to win the gold, and I, I really thought we could, and we didn't. And uh, um, uh, a lot of things went, you know, that were difficult because I was, you know, I was, I was handling a, a superstar team, total superstar team, guys that all, at, you know, were used to averaging 40 minutes of basketball yeah. game and trying to get them to, to buy into, uh, you know, playing, you know, you play five minutes, then you play the best five minutes you can. You play 30 minutes, you play the best 30 minutes. Didn't matter. You were going to do whatever it took uh, to win because it was bigger than all of us. You know, this, what we were doing was bigger than any one individual on the basketball team. We were playing for the country. And uh, that was the message. It was hard. And it was very difficult um, to, to manage all the egos in there. Uh, some guys were really good about it. Some were, some were, were, were not. Uh, I think that Jojo had the impression at that time that he felt, because he was my player, that I was going to play him more. Um, and I, I was of a, a different philosophy. I, I felt that because he was my player, uh, he would understand that and trust me that, that, I, you know, that I would do the, uh, the right things for the team and that no matter what I did, because he was my player, he would go along with it. Um, and I just didn't understand that. He didn't understand that. And we just got kind of on two different sides of the coin. And uh, uh, he got really upset about it. And I didn't even know he was upset about it until uh, till that actual game against Kazakhstan. I didn't even know that he was angry. Someone had told me. I, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was uh, Chut or Adik. I'm not sure. Um, but someone had told me that, that JoJo was very upset. And uh, um, and then he went out. We played Kazakhstan, and you know, basically I went with the same lineup as I as I had gone. It was very very depressing because we were playing for third, and we had already gotten beat by China, and we we had a chance to beat China in that game too. We we had a you know we were down uh, we were down I think it was three points or two points. We were on a fast break. Um, Johnny was on a fast break, a two-on-one with Alan Kaidik, and they had one guy back, and uh, uh, and we thought that Johnny was, that we thought Alan was going to go for the layup, and John, and Alan and flared, and Johnny thought he was going to lay up, so he he threw the ball, and, and Alan put it out to the three, and the ball went out of bounds. And I was like, uh, with a minute to go, and uh, they came down and hit a uh, had a three-point play, and then we missed. Then he came down and hit another three. Then he hit a three-point shot, and that was it. That was the game. That was the last possession. But we were that close to beating China, and that was that great team of Wang Zhuzhu and Meng Batir, and, and they were awesome. That was, to me, their best ever China team, even the better than the Yao Ming teams. Um, and uh, and they hadn't lost in, in ages. 
but we had played Korea and uh, Korea had, you know, I, I'm not going to go through that game because it hurt too much to think about it. <laughs> I've been trying to make up that game ever since. Um, but we got beat up in Korea and I just didn't coach it well. Uh, I should have used our personnel differently. We had versatility in our personnel and I didn't use it. Uh, um, I was so focused on China. I looked past uh, Korea and uh, then, uh, you know, then we played China the next day and lost to them. And that put us in the game for third. I play, playing the third for third is the hardest thing ever. Yeah. That's why I'm glad they took, remember the old days used to have that playoff of third in the PBA? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember that? We, we used to have a, mm-hmm. there was a time when we had a five game playoff. Yeah, serious. Best of five yeah. for third That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. Used to be <laughs> then it went down to best of three and then it finally went down to a knockout game and finally they the knocked, one game, it yeah, that's right. knocked it out of the park. <laughs> finally, you know, it was the third game, that play on playing for third is like the worst thing ever. You know, it's really hard to motivate anybody. You already feel like you're a loser, um, you know. And then so I'm going into that game, uh, Kazakhstan, for them to place third was a, a, a tremendous achievement for them. And for us to place third, it was like, eh, you know. So it was a really tough game to get everybody motiv- for, motivated for it. The good news was JoJo was motivated. And he was not motivated to win third. He was motivated to make a point to me. And... Uh, um, and he went into the game, and he just went uh, wildfire. He was making shots from all over. And uh, um, we were actually losing to Kazakhstan when he came in. And he just, you know, led us to, led us to like a three-point win or a three- or five-point win. It was mm-hmm. close, and we almost lost that. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was devastated. Uh, um, uh, JoJo, I think, mentioned that I had cried, and I did. I'm sorry, Jojo, it wasn't about you. <laughs> I, was, I was angry at you or whatever, but it was, I was really devastated about the whole emotion of the, of the, of the, of the thing. I didn't go to the locker room after the, after the Kazakhstan game. I didn't go in the locker room. I was just, I was just feeling so bad. And uh, I've never, ever cried in any other game in my whole career, ever. Uh, that was the only game I've ever cried. I'm just not a crier. And I uh, maybe cried two or three times in my whole life. And that was, uh, my mother died and, and, you know, after that, that series. So it was a, just a, uh, it's like an emotional release that I had over that whole experience. Uh, it was difficult. It was really, really difficult to, to lose that. And it was tougher because Jojo made it tougher because he was, he was so upset about it. So that made it tougher as well. And the next day at the airport, it was tough. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he still wasn't speaking to me. He didn't speak to me for, for, for a few weeks. Yeah, he also mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a tough time. He, he it was a very, very tough time. Yeah. It wasn't like I wasn't speaking to him. He just wasn't speaking to me. Yeah. It was tough on me. It was tough on my wife. It was tough on everybody. Uh, the whole experience. Not just, I'm not talking about Joe, but the whole experience. And it's not something that, that I always talk about because it just brings back such tough memories, you know. And uh, uh, you want to talk about the Southeast Asian Games? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Coach, I wanted to ask uh, all those years of running the triangle, all these players uh, under you, 
did any player ever just quit on the triangles? I can't get it. I want out of your team. Trade me or don't sign me anymore when I when my contract expires. Did anyone come up to you to say that or, or did it happen? You'll never believe who did that. Can you guess? Anybody? I'll get. I'll let you. I'll give you a guess. It's at the Pure Foods team. Can you give me a guess. Wow. Wow. Hold on. Noel. Uh, there you go. I'm thinking. thinking you're thinking of someone who left? <laughs> yes. No, he didn't leave, actually. Oh, he didn't, he didn't he leave, did. but he wanted to leave. He was very upset and wanted to leave. Oh. Joe DeVance? No, can't be. Oh, not Joe. Oh, not James? Joe. James, yeah? Mark. Oh, Mark. Yeah, James. James would, even, even if James, if you know James, even if he wanted to leave, he would never say it. I mean, he's just too nice of a guy. He would never say it. He probably did want to leave at some point, but he, he, he would never, he was just too nice. I mean, James is like the nicest guy you'll ever, ever meet. I mean, uh, so pleasant to be around. But anyway, no, it wasn't James. My, my, my guess, yeah, my guess is Mark Fingers. You're right. It's oh, pink. wow. Okay, okay. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> We'd like and to hear I didn't about know that. that at the time. He didn't come to me, obviously. He wouldn't come to me and just say, Coach, I want to get out of here. But uh, uh, he went to our team manager, uh, Mr. Pardo, Renee Pardo, and uh, about a month into to my my little over a month, I think it was, uh, uh, he went over into Mr. Pardo and told him that uh, he wants to be traded because he he felt he would never learn the triangle, and he just didn't didn't think he could learn it. And uh, that point, that's I never I never really talked to Mark uh, a thing about it because uh, this is a story that was told to me through Mr. Pardo. So. Uh, um, uh, by the time I heard this, we'd already won the Grand Slam, so <laughs> no reason to talk to Mark about it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, apparently, he, he was really bothered by the fact that he didn't feel he could learn and that he might be better off moving to another team. And Mr. Pardo told me that he said, you know, give give Coach Tim a chance, you know, just keep trying, working at it, you know, and, and let's let's see where we can go. And ironically, I would say. In my career, probably the best person to execute who really understood the triangle was Joe DeVance. I think was Joe DeVance was mm -hmm. number one. Um, number two was probably Bong Hawkins. Bong Hawkins had a really good feel and understanding of the triangle. And I'm not including imports here because Sean would be up there as well. But just local players. And I honestly feel that Payne would be number three. Payne wow. got to a point where he understood the triangle better than anybody. And the great thing about Ping and Bong both is that if you weren't running the triangle, if you were doing something on your own, they would let you know. They weren't afraid to tell you, hey, you know, get back to what we're doing. And that was really crucial to our success. Those two guys with that incredible buy-in and understanding and then making sure that everybody else towed the line and, and did their best in trying to stay with it. Uh, that was really crucial to, to, to our winning. Coach, I want to go back to 1996 when you when you won the Grand Slam. Obviously, when the first conference started, you weren't thinking Grand Slam. When you assembled that team in '96, Jeff is in his second year already. Everybody's already, um, you know, figured out how the offense works. Did you think that you would be so dominant for the rest of 1996? Well, if you remember, we won night. We won the Governor's Cup in 1995. Yeah. So you know, we are, already had some momentum at that time, and. And uh, we were already feeling pretty good about ourselves. And then we got, Je uh, I'm sorry, then, then um, uh, uh, Jeffrey uh, stepped up in, in, that, in that second year. Oh, he also played a big role in 95, I have to admit. It, it was his second year. But 
Um, it was just like we were starting to complete ourselves. Uh, the, another thing about the triangles, the triangle gets better the more you run it, the longer you run it, the more you understanding you have of it, and it kind of evolves. It, it, it moves on itself. It, uh, uh, I said this uh, in, a, in, a, in a video, just a Zoom, just a couple nights ago when I was playing the triangle. But it's like if someone does something defensively to stop what you normally do, um, what the offense, the offense would naturally counter into something else. So if you're kind of trying to stop you from getting to that pinch action, then it would counter and go somewhere else, a natural counter. And then you take that natural counter and you put it in your pocket. You know, you leave it in your pocket. And then, uh, you know, it, and then you, you do something else. They, they wouldn't want to pass the ball the wing or they're trying to deny, you know, something else. And then you naturally counter. You get that one, you put it in your pocket. So after a while, you put all these things in your pocket and you bring them out when you needed them and the offense would build and build and build and build on itself. You got to remember, I never called a play. I never called, you know, play number one, play number two, you know, nose, ear, whatever. I never called that. Uh, the triangle ran itself. Uh, players were totally dependent to run it on their own. So we had gotten to a level now, and we had been to the finals uh, in 94, the first two conferences, and lost, I'm sorry, 95, 94. Sorry, 95. And we had lost the first two conferences to, uh, to Pop Cola. Uh, and then we, they were trying to get that grand slam in 95 and we won, we beat them in, that, in 95. Yes. With uh, Derek Pomona was the coach. And so we already had, we were second, second, first, going into 96. And, uh, um, so we had a really good feel for ourselves. I think, you know, the key was winning the Al Filipino. It's always the key is winning the Al Filipino. And, uh, when we won the Al Filipino, I just felt that we, we started to feel like, you know, we can do something. Uh, special. We didn't really talk about it, but we felt that we could do something special. So it wasn't a shock, really, to us. Um, we were building to that to that moment. Uh, but it's, you know, that that team was was so process oriented and so plain in the moment. They didn't really look beyond what they were doing, and that's what made them so so good. So they focused on the off Filipino, then they went in and played that really, really tough series against Chito Narvasa and Shell. That was Ken really Redfield. a tough series for Ken us. Redfield, yeah. Ken Redfield. And we had a, you know, we had Derek Hamilton as our import, and then he got banned from the league, probably unjustly, but he got banned from the league, and Sean had to come in and take his place, and he was undersized, and we were able to win that really tough seven-game series. I will never forget that Richie takes on turnaround jump shot from the corner that beat us in game six. We thought we'd already won the championship in game six. And then, you know, we started off badly in, in, in game in the third conference. I think we won our, lost our first two or three games. And then we went on a 13 game winning streak and just, mm -hmm. you know, rushed through that uh, into the grand slam playing in Ebra in the finals. So, um, I wouldn't say it was a surprise. I think it's a surprise anytime you win the Grand Slam, but uh, I felt that anybody that could do it, this team could, because of, uh, of their continuity, um, you know, and, and their their togetherness. So there was a really together team. It was a really a team of camaraderie. Uh, they were really special that way. I mean, they went out after every game and hung out. And you know, I've never had a team that hung out like these guys did. And I, again, I should say that was fostered by the organization and the culture.
which was led uh, and, and decided by Freddie Intensive. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, gentlemen, we're live on Facebook now. A bunch of guys uh, listening in to us. Jay Lopez, Mike Perez is there. And Coach Jude Roque is actually listening in. And he has a question for Coach right, Jude. Okay, the question of Coach Jude is, at any point in your coaching career, did you, when you were using the triangle, did you think maybe this isn't the right offense to run for this group of guys that I have? Should I change it? Well, yeah, we did that early. You know, obviously there's a lot of doubt. Uh, we weren't being successful with it. And, uh, and what I said is that when you're not successful, you kind of revert back to comfort zones. And, and so I went back to stuff that I've written done in the past. And that just made it worse just because you were, you were like jack of all trades, master of nothing. You were kind of doing a little bit of triangle, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that never, ever worked. So, you know, when we fully committed to it, that's when we started to, to get better and uh, got to that point of 96 and into 98. I actually think the 98 team was better than the 96 team. Yeah. Uh, it's also what Joel said. I was going to ask about that. Go ahead. Yeah. But anyway, um, but uh, obviously, you know, the last five years, uh, four years, I should say, that, you know, we have moved away from the pure triangle and tried to create an offense with tri triangle principles. And uh, um, so, you know, and we did that a lot because of personnel and just because the game was kind of evolving and we wanted to try to catch up to the game in terms of tempo and, and and three-point shooting and, and things of that sort. So we, we kind of went away from the triangle starting in 2016, uh, to, you know, between 2017. We went back and forth for a little bit, but you know now we've settled into uh, what we're doing now. But so, yeah, there was always times where there's doubt. But through the – between maybe 94 and 2015 you know, or 16, no, I, I really can't say that I had any doubts of whether I should be running the triangle or not. I had so much success with it, and I always had to just find, you know, it's a versatile offense, so you can do a lot of different things with it. And we, we you know, we, we, did a, we, we did it in a versatile way, but depending on what kind of import we had and such, but uh, – Generally, we always played the triangle, and it was just a matter of trying to get buy-in for the players. I have a question, Coach, about that 98 team. You said mm -hmm. it was actually probably the stronger team as opposed to the uh, 96 team because you did have a Kenneth Duremdes. You had Rodney Santos already on that team. And Giorgio Lastimosa actually said, was, uh, was telling you, don't include me in the Centennial team because we have a chance to win a Grand Slam if you leave me with Alaska. Uh, what was the thought process going into that? final conference when you were so close to winning a Grand Slam, but you also had a patriotic duty with the Centennial team. And to me, it was not even a decision. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even, I mean, I, I look back on it and I have absolutely no regrets. I regret that we didn't get the goal, but I certainly don't have regrets that we didn't get the Grand Slam. I just, I, I, I find it uh, hard to believe that anybody would basically, you know, equate the Grand Slam to uh, the national team. And, uh, so it never, it never even really occurred to me. I do remember Jojo coming up and saying, uh, but I thought it was more of, you know, come on, Joe, I mean, come on, coach, let's, let's just try to win the Grand Slam. Uh, I didn't think it was as serious as, as he, he made it out to be. And maybe he was, I just took it differently. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, to me, it was, it, it was a no-brainer. And it was an opportunity that, you know, comes once in a lifetime, the coach and, 
and to have the backing that they gave us and, you know, the ability to travel and, and uh, play in the United States against all those. We played against the who's who of coaches in the, in the United States when we took our tour in, in the college tour and, and uh, Jones Cup. And I mean, to me, that was so much more exciting than ever winning a Grand Slam. So um, it would just, it, to me, it, it's, it's not even a, a true question. It, and uh, uh, we, you know, we did our thing, went in 98, and, and we got to play, we had to play against Ron Jacobs twice in that, uh, the first conference and the second conference. Uh, he played San Miguel twice in the finals. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like the, the ultimate test was, was coaching against Ron Jacobs. Uh, and uh, so 98 was a good year. It was mm -hmm. just a tough ending just because of the, uh, the bronze medal instead of the gold. Now we look up back on it and we go, wow, we want a gold. I mean, we want a bronze medal. That's so my wife says, you know, Tim, why do you feel bad about that? You want a bronze medal, you know, and at least you want a medal. And I said, well, you just, it was to be there at that time. Yeah. Bronze was nothing. Now it looks back. It's all right. But back then oh, it was nothing. So again, I, I never gave it really any thought. And I don't think Mr. Retenso gave it any thought as well. I think that we were all on board. Maybe the only one that wasn't on board was, was Jojo and uh, um, and and you know Jojo was a real important part of what we wanted because we needed him to help us get buy-in for all the other superstars that was basically you know one of Jojo's and Johnny's and and Bo Hawkins role the the bad news was and I thought this really affected us in 98 and maybe prevented us from winning that gold is that we lost Bone Hawkins to an ACL injury in the second conference. Right, right. He was already on the team, and uh, we lost him to that. And, and he was a guy that I relied on uh, incredibly. As you know, as I said earlier about him, knowledge of the triangle and keeping everybody in line, he would have been a, a tremendous boost, uh, uh, almost another coach on that team if he had been able to play in 98 and the Centennial team. So... But to me, again, it wasn't wasn't really a, a question of whether we we stay and do the goal, do that thing. And uh, and as it turned out, you know, I mean, Jojo by himself there with Alaska, I don't know if they would have been able to win the the uh, the championship anyway uh, in the third conference um, without Bohm and Johnny and and Kenneth uh, there with them. That could, certainly couldn't leave all four of them there to win the grand, to play the grand Sam and <laughs> go to the Centennial team without them. So uh, uh, it was either basically it was all or nothing. Coach, in, the, in your several final series that you've played against the, some of these great coaches in our league, there have been some sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe shy wars going on, some verbal tussles with some of these guys. It was recorded in the news and all of that. Was there ever a time that you engaged in these sci-wars, uh, what they call sci-wars, and you came to regret it? Like you said, you know, it might have, might have uh, hit me in the back because you know, the other coach responded accordingly and then you weren't able to respond, uh, you know, in kind. Uh, well, I remember, I remember a time, and it wasn't finals, I don't think. It was just a regular game uh, with Sonny Jaworski. You know, as I said earlier, one of my heroes. Um, there was a time, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, uh, but at the end of the game, I was really mad at the referee 
And so kind of in protest, I told our players to freeze the ball, even though we were losing. And, uh, uh, and it didn't look good. And, uh, um, I believe I got fined in the, in the, by the league. I can't remember whether I did or not. Uh, and we just froze the ball and didn't take a shot, even though we were losing. And uh, uh, took a 24-second violation. And it was just kind of – I was protesting the referees. I had nothing to do with, with, uh, with, with Sonny. And in the uh, – it was at Astrodome. And in the hallway in the back where all the locker rooms was, I was leaving and I went by uh, Sonny Jaworski to congratulate him for the win and to tell him that, you know, I'm sorry about, you know, what I did because, uh, you know, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about him ever. It was, you know, about, it was really a protest about the referees. But before I could even say anything, he, learned, he turned to me and said, I have lost all my, all my respect for you as a coach. And then he turned away. And I was crushed. I was broken. Uh, really, really hurt. And uh, I, I, you know, slunk my way out of the lot, out of the, <laughs> the coliseum, mm -hmm. and found my way to the car. And uh, but that was that that I, I remember that because it was so painful for him mm -hmm. to say that to me. And uh, uh, but I mean that that didn't last. I mean over the years we've 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 you know we've made up and we're we're. You know, I wouldn't say we're best friends, but we're, you know, we're very good friends. And uh, um, that, and, and I'm sure there are other ones. Uh, there was the uh, Dolphins and Sharks. I don't know if you remember that one in Chita Narvasa in the Grand Slam year. My daughter always refers to it, uh, so I, I always have it in my mind. Um, you know, I don't remember, that, that particular conference was a weird conference because if you remember, Kenny Redfield, who was playing for Shell at that time, he made a half-court shot <laughs> in the semifinals to knock he never out. Yeah. And he never had been winning that game the whole way. They'd been winning that game the whole way, and they were the favorite team, and there was just, you know, no way Shell was going to win. You know, there was no way the referees were going to allow Shell to win. You know, they, the league wanted he never into the, in the finals so they could have the big crowd. You know, you always hear all that stuff. And so we were all locked into that. We were waiting for that game to finish. We were already in the finals, the last of us. And so we were waiting. We were all 1,000% sure that we would play in Ebra. And it was kind of like, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, we, we knew we didn't think Shell was as strong as it ever was, and we would have to deal with the crowd. So I guess there was a feeling that maybe we wanted to play against Shell rather than Nebra. And then Kenny Redfield hits that, that shot at half court and wins the game. Uh, yeah. outright and it was like a big shock to everybody and it was like be careful what you wish for suddenly we got shell instead of an ember well in game one we played shell they beat us mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden we're down the series and you know uh, and we were so caught up the one thinking we were going to play never and all these big crowds all of a sudden the crowds didn't show up and the intensity level wasn't there so we played game two and we sneaked, snuck out a win in game two. And, uh, um, and then they won game three. They went up 2-1. And still, the crowds were not there. I think everybody was so disappointed everybody didn't win or didn't play that nobody came to watch. And then uh, suddenly after game two, uh, game four, we won game four. 
and it was 2-2. And I turned around to the press right after the game, you know, they, they interviewed the coach right after the game. And I said right then and there, I said, we are like sharks in the water. I said, this series is over. This is 2-2. I'm saying this series is over. We're going to sweep the next game. Sales not going to get another game. We are like sharks and we smell blood. We're like sharks in the water. And so it comes out in the papers the next day. Sharks are in the, you know, Alaska says there's sharks. Series is going to be over. And, uh, um, and then Chito Navasa comes out and says, well, if there's sharks, we're dolphins and we kill dolphins. I mean, we kill sharks. He goes, we kill sharks. And so the next day, the paper was the sharks. <laughs> and, you know, those days, Flipper was the big show, and Flipper would always go over and kill all the sharks for all the, all the, all the little kids that were in the water. So it was dolphins versus sharks. And then I, we went out, and we won game five. And everybody was saying, ah, Tim's crystal ball. You know, he knew what he was saying. Da, 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 da. And then Richie Tixon makes that shot in game six and beats us. <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm saying, oh, my gosh. And then everybody says, you know, what happened, Tim Cone? You didn't win. You know, you shall won. It was, like, it was like the worst thing that ever happened. And, and they asked me about game seven. I said, I'm, I'm no longer doing – I'm no longer looking into my crystal ball because it doesn't work, obviously. My crystal ball <laughs> broke in game six. And uh, we went out and, and, and snuck game seven out. It was a close game. We, we won. And uh, terrifically, it was one of the hardest series – that I'd ever coached. And it was supposed to be the easy one. And, you know, once you start thinking it's easy, it's easy yeah. it gets hard in a hurry. And it got hard in a hurry in that series. But I'll never forget that with Chito and I going back, sharks and dolphins, sharks and dolphins. <laughs> That's all part of the gamesmanship, coach. Yeah, my, my, wife, my daughter who was of age, she was maybe, you know, maybe 12 or 13 at that age. She loved that, you know, sharks and dolphins. <laughs> She's like 28 years old now and she, Still talks about it all the time. The sharks and dolphins series. Yeah, I'll never forget that one. Noel, of course, then Chito becomes the, the commissioner a few years later. Yeah, I had to apologize to him. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have, no an import, you have an import question? Yeah, I, I do. I actually have an import question. I mean, who, which import you, you've coached has made the biggest impact to your team? Would it be? I'm narrowing it down to two imports. Would it be Sean Chambers or Justin Brownlee? Or even Marcus Blakely, for that matter? Uh, um, is this over yet? Can we, can we go on? Can I, can I sign off now? <laughs> I Your three days, though, three days instead of two. You got to remember, Sean came to me when I was really, really young. You know, and I needed that kind of support from a guy like him. Uh, you know, he... Uh, without him, I never, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. Sean was was everything. Remember, he was the only guy that was incumbent uh, that I had that made that Grand Slam team. We built that Grand Slam team, you know, Fred and Walkie, Trillo, and myself over the years through trades and draft picks, and and but Sean was the constant through all those years, and he, he you know. We won, a, we won six championships with him. You know, he's still the number one winning, winning his championship uh, 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 import of all time. And uh, so he was incredibly special. Um, it's been really nice to have a Justin this late in my career. And, you know, he actually was the one that brought me out of the triangle a little bit and made me do things because, yeah, he was such a special talent. We want to do a couple other things with him. And uh, um, it, they're, they're two peas in a pod. Uh, they are both so incredibly likable, but for different reasons. Sean is much more boisterous and talkative. 
he's so much fun to be around. Um, you know, he'll crack jokes and, and uh, he'll be with anybody. I don't care. I remember being in the airport with him. We were doing a scouting trip together and we were at the airport and we sat down and there was a lady, an older lady, probably my age now, but she seemed older at that time. I was maybe only in my thirties or at that time. And we sat down and she probably maybe had been in 60 or 70. And Sean turns to her and she just starts picking up a conversation. He didn't know her from Adam. Just starts talking to her. And that's what Sean was all about. Sean would talk to anybody, anywhere, and he would be your best friend in, in, in a moment, you know. And uh, he had such an infectious personality, and that, that went over the whole team. And I never worried about chemistry, anything that we had problems with chemistry when, when Sean came in, because I knew that he would take care of it. He would figure it out. Uh, he would, you know, he would go over and smooth the feathers of JoJo or, you know, or, or you know, get – Bone would be mad at me for two days, and he'd go, Bone, come on, you could do two days, you know, stuff like that. But he would never have a chemistry problem with Sean around. Justin is also an incredibly nice person in a very, very different way. He's extremely quiet, you know, he, he doesn't talk a lot, but he is a giggler. He giggles all the time, and he giggles and laughs at any joke. I don't care how dumb it is, how bad it is, or whatever, he will laugh. He loves to laugh. And uh, that just makes him so fun to be around all the time. And, uh, um, and he's such an incredible player. And he's so incredible, incredibly hum humble. He just doesn't know how good he is as a basketball player, you know. Um, and he is that good. And he's that good of a person. So it's really hard to choose between the two of them. And another guy can peach there is Marcus Blakely. Marcus Blakely was an incredible guy to have around as well. You can't, you know, Marcus, you know, was, was, uh, won two championships with us in that Grand Slam year. I mean, in that Grand Slam streak, with four championships, mm -hmm. two of them were his. Uh, and uh, he was an incredible guy also. And for another different reason, you know, different personality, completely from the other two, but also very nice. So I've been blessed with, with, with a lot of really nice imports. One of the funnest reports I also had was Dickie Simpkins talking about the last dance. I don't know if you remember Dickie Simpkins. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. He played yeah, with yeah, the Chicago Bulls and was part of that last dance. And, uh, um, you know, I've seen him on a couple of, you know, just on the side of a couple of uh, videos in the last dance. And he was the only import I ever had that knew the triangle uh, when he came in. Knew the triangle as well as I did, maybe even better than I did when he came in as an import and uh, that was a real special time. He told the stories and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun having him on the team. Cy Young, he, he hurt his back in the, in, in the quarterfinals. Uh, he could all barely stand up, but he fought through it and tried to win for us, but we got knocked out by uh, Red Bull, I think it was at the time. What were his comments on the, how you ran your triangle coach? Uh, did he give input well, as well? Yeah, he gave us inputs, but you know we ran it exactly the same way that Tex ran it. I mean, mm -hmm. it was yeah. it was carbon copy. Um, mm -hmm. He stepped in, and it was like you know piece of cake for him. He was surprised at how how we ran it. Um, the thing is, it was just such a seamless uh, entry, as opposed to the imports. You had to come in and go through the herky jerkiness of learning it. We had to show him video. We had to go through all the steps, and, um, and it was always a learning curve. But for Dickie, it was so simple. I remember he came in as an import. He came in for Leon Derrick or Leon somebody. Uh, he came in as a, sorry, Leon, I should remember your name. But he 
he came in as a, as a, as a replacement and we had lost like our first three games where we were like one and four or something like that when he came in and immediately he stepped in and we went on the winning streak. And, uh, and again, he was just so seamless to have him, have him there. Coach, we have a, we have a couple of, uh, standard questions we ask our guests, but before we get to that, there's a question on the FB live, uh, feed. From Jamie mm -hmm. Lopez, you know, because Noel did mention it earlier. The, you, you, well, you mentioned it earlier. The Sea Games. You wanted to talk about that. That's the experience of coaching the Philippine team once again in a much better situation. But the question actually is, what's the future of Philippine basketball as you see it now? Is it European style? Is it what you know? What's the right way to, to go forward? Well, I think a lot of it again is going to depend on the coach. You know, if you bring a European coach in, you're going to play a European style. And um, and to me, it's not you know there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's not one way that's going to be successful. Um, what's going to be successful is a guy coming in and having a commitment to the program and having the country committed to the program, the powers that be uh, be committed to the program and have a level of continuity uh, and be able to be not successful in the beginning, you know, and and. and and have failure uh, because you don't have success without failure. You just don't step in and have success. It doesn't happen. It never does. And uh, Michael Jordan is, is the story, I mean, uh, of all that. Um, and so it's really going to come down to me continuity and support to whoever it is that takes over that team. Um, and I, I think talking to Alpan Lilio and, and being a part of that program for that very short time, I think they, they have that in mind. I think that message is clear. And I think now, I think that would have been more clear had we not gone to this level right now, you know, the coronavirus right now. You're going to wonder how long it's going to take before we get back to you know, PBA coach, much less international, you know, international, that could be a long time coming before we get back to playing internationally because, you know, the, the protection of borders and whatever. Um, so, uh, but that's going to be set back a little bit, but the step back will always also give us more time to think on it and, and, uh, and to get a better pathway and plan in, in place. But again, to me, it's all about continuity, and I mean, there's maybe 15 coaches out there, um, probably more. A lot of coaches out there we don't even know of that could come in and do something really good with our program. But you know, it's it it does it's not the, necessarily the coach. It's going to be the support and the continuity for them. Because again, there's more ways more more ways than one to skip that. I don't think there is a European style play anymore. Mm -hmm. Honestly. I think the NBA has already adopted that European style of play. Uh, I think there's a lot of teams that are out there running it. I think Popovich had, had a real good feel for European play many years ago. I think that's a that's a that's a a, a style or a name that's that's out of vogue already. I, I don't think that's I don't think there's a European or an NBA style of play now. Um, I think there's like a you know uh, all the coaches are pretty much coaching the same way. The three point shooting. The, the tempo up the floor, uh, big man, you know, playing on the perimeter, opening up the, the paint for penetration and, and sets. And you look at the sets people run, they're all very similar. Uh, um, it's, 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 you know, it's been revolutionized already. The game always evolved, but I think we're in a cycle right now where it's pretty much the same. Well, 
Hey, Coach. Well, I have, I have one, one more question before we go to our standard questions, uh, Coach Tim. And I'm sure you've been asked this millions of times already before. Um, what was your favorite Grand Slam team? Was it the 96 or the 14? Uh, it's like, you know, people ask me about that with my, my, the championships, you know. And which championship did you like the most? Uh, ones that are most memorable. You know, both Grand Slams are incredibly memorable. They were they were done very, very differently. Uh, we talked about the 96, you know, we, we basically, except for that little blip in against the shell team, we pretty much dominated throughout that, that whole, that whole year ended with a 13 game, you know, winning streak and beating, you know, he never four games to one. Uh, uh, there wasn't really much challenge at that point. Uh, but if you look at the Sam, Sam Mig uh, grand slam, I mean, we placed like, fifth and then sixth and then fourth or something like that uh, in every conference. And, and, and uh, there was no break between any of the conferences because they were all compressing everything. So we didn't have a chance to recover. I think the second conference we went and won, and then we played three days later into the next conference already. So, I mean, it was, it was really trying. And uh, uh, we, you know, we were high flying with Alaska, but with, with Sam Mig, it was like, you know, you know, wrenching every little piece of sweat and blood that we had to try to get that grand slam. And if you remember the last game, my gosh, I mean, uh, the last play of the game. I mean, Paul Lee was wide open for a three that could have, that would have won it. We were up by two. He shot a wide open three and missed it. And then, um, uh, uh, then the ball got rebound and then Jeff Chan, Got another wide open three. I mean, absolutely wide open. Nobody would buy him. And he misses it also. I mean, Paul and Jeff, the two best shooters in the league. And then they get the, the ball goes out of bounds. It's still their favor. They got three seconds to go. They get the ball into AZ Reed. AZ Reed jumps from the three-point line, shoots it. And I thought for sure it was going in. And it hits the back of the rim. Hits the back of the rim and bounces out. And we win the Grand Slam. I mean, it was, I mean, how much was the difference between winning and losing? And uh, so, you know, it took every little thing that we had, every little luck, every little, you know, blessing that we had from, from the Lord. Uh, I mean, and, and the, the perseverance of those guys, it was, it was really amazing to win that. So each one had its very definite personality. Um, and uh, like I said, you know, Grand Slams, they have to work their right. Everything has to go your way. You know, I think San Miguel this, this year was the, was the ultimate, you know, example because, you know, they had it all going. It looked like they had a great import. Des Wells in the third conference, they were on the roll. But, you know, just one thing happens and bam, it's gone. That's and, right. that, you know, they had that little practice there and changed the whole course of their of the fact of winning the Grand Slam. Happened also to Pop Cola in 1995. They had a problem with their import in, in 1995. And I think it was a contract problem or, with a teammate or something similar to what happened with San Miguel and that that card that broke their whole thing and they didn't win the grand slam. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of having Sean Chambers. It gives you a chance Probably. to win <laughs> and you know having a Marcus Blakely who'd already won a championship with us, you know, we knew who he was what he was all about and gives a chance to win that third conference. So we were blessed. Okay. Yeah coach uh I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, uh, bring us home. We've got two standard questions for all of uh, our guests. Uh, first off, a little background here. I'm going to ask you 
who was who's your toughest who has been your toughest uh, coaching opponent now we asked this question of uh, I could have said all the other like, coaches said it's you yeah yeah all of the other coaches we interviewed yeah, right. coach John coach Yang coach yeah, Norman coach Tim yeah they all said it was you oh, uh, so we'd like to throw that question to you it's really difficult for me man i you know been to what 30 finals appearances so 30 <laughs> 34 finals appearances, so I've gone up against a lot of coaches. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's the guy I had the least success against. I guess that's who I would measure mm -hmm. as the guy I had the least success against. I mean, I would say Chuck was really hard for me. He knew me inside and out. Chuck Reyes knew me inside and out. I've been coaching as Norman Black for years and years and years. Uh, Yang Giao, you know, was – uh, a polar opposite of the way I coach. So it was always a real clash of philosophies. Um, you know, as mentioned, Ron Jacobs, but he was in the league for such a short time. But my utmost respect for, for, for Ron and by extension, Jong, because Jong was very much like Ron. Um, so, you know, Sonny Jaworski and, and all that he brought, David Delupan, but I only got to play against him once. But the guy probably that I have to say that I had the least amount of successes is Ryan Gregorio. Ryan oh. beat me up all the time. He wow. beat me up. Beat me up. Oh, he's got a three, goat about that the whole year. I had a three <laughs> game, I had a three games to one lead in the semifinals, and he came back and won three state and beat me. We had swept Tenebra <laughs> four games to zero in the semifinals. We played Pure Foods in the finals. We were flying high. He swept us 4-0 in the finals. I mean, all the toughest moments. And I, I remember we had a 32-point lead against Ryan Gregorio. Uh, and he came back and beat us in that 32-point game. So, you know, he just had my number. He's my contrapello. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we wanted to find out about this, but... Uh, I hope he's not watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm going to message him right now. I've said it, no, I've said it, to, I've said it before. That, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've actually said it to him before that uh, he, he, he gave me more problems than any other coach. Just, I mean, I had the least amount of success. I had, I had bad success against Yang and Chud and, and Norman and all those guys, but not like not the hurting, really painful <laughs> ones uh, by Ryan. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting answer, Coach. Go ahead, uh, yeah, the last question we have is, uh, who are your top five favorite players of all time? Top five. I hate answering those that questions. You've coached. <laughs> that you've coached. That you've coached. As soon as you say it, there's always someone you're leaving out. You know, you, you cannot, you know, I've been in the league 30 years. How many players yeah. have I coached? Yeah. You know, I've been involved in... 34, uh, 34 finals appearances, you know, so the, there's a lot yeah, of players yeah. that have been involved. For you, that's, that's tough for you. It's a tough question for me, it really is. I mean, I will... I you will, can throw in the sixth man if you want. I will say ultimate, you know, I will say that, that uh, John, <laughs> Johnny Abariantos deserves to be there. But uh, beyond Johnny, I don't want to say anymore. <laughs> I really don't want to say anymore. Um, I mean, how do you compare Bone? How do you compare the five? How about the five guys? Mark Fingers. How do you compare James Shaft with Jojo Lastimosa? You know, I mean, you can go through these, you know, all these things all the way through. But penultimately, I mean, the, the ultimately, Johnny 
you know, was the best. And but you know, but even though you guys kind of throw in LA there as well, you know, all the sections that we've had with LA, but still Johnny was the best. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's easy to say Johnny, it's hard to say everybody else. Really, say, truly, say coach that yeah, Johnny Abrientos is the best player you've ever coached. I would say so. I would say so. And I'm, I'm sorry for the other guys, but I would just, you know, I think Johnny deserves that mantle of being the best that I've ever Great. coached. I think he's one of the all-time. I think he's, you know, and I know Hector Kalman very well, and I always apologize to Hector. I always apologize to him. But I say, <laughs> Hector, you know, Johnny was the best point guard ever. And now I have to apologize to Jason Castro as well. But uh, Jason was more of a points guard. So uh, Johnny, I think, was the greatest point guard ever and maybe one of the greatest players of all time. I just think that he was small, so he doesn't get included with the Fajardos and Juan Fernandez's and all those guys, but he was truly special. And to be around him like I was, I knew how special he was. Hey, we, we need to have another, Ooh. we need to have another session with Coach Tim. That's not, this is not enough. Uh, coach, we'll invite you again soon, you know, if you have time. <laughs> okay. That's not Amazing. enough time to talk, talk about, about all the about, things. Uh, pure food and Ever next time. It'll be fun. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm and a lot of other stuff. Uh, I mean, the uh, the Southeast Asian games. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We left that <laughs> out, though. <laughs> well, if you want to add something now, coach, if you want to talk about Southeast Yeah, go ahead. The, that team. No, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I mean, you, you get me going. <laughs> You're going to be here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, 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 ripe, it's ripe for a part two, no? Soon. Part, exactly. For yeah. uh, Ariel Vanguardia had me on for a, a triangle thing that I did for yeah, him yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. a couple nights ago, and, and it was supposed to be last night, a couple nights ago. I was supposed to be on for an hour and a half. Supposed How to long? be on for an hour and a half. How long did it last? I went on for three hours. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, an hour. And we can we can go as long as that right now, guys. So I, mean, I just couldn't shut up. And my players are always telling me that. Why don't you just shut up sometimes, coach? I can't shut up. I just blab and blab and blab and blab. No, well, I'll ask Too you right now, stories. coach, about that. Uh, since I'm already intrigued. Yeah. The Southeast Asian Games team was, uh, how would you compare that with the Centennial team? Uh, so we built it very similar, similarly. Um, you know, we, we try to get a core of Alaska players to join us at the Centennial mm -hmm. team. And we try to get a, I'll try to be as quick as I can. We did a core of, uh, of, of Hinebra players to join the national team and then got guys that we fit. Uh, and I went for veterans back in the day. Uh, you know, we had like Nick Velasco. I think Danny Siegel might have been there already. And we didn't choose those guys. We wanted to go with a veteran crew. Same thing with this. You know, we had a – we felt we were, we were imparting, teaching a, a difficult system. And we felt veterans would get to know it better. Than, than the younger players. And we, so we, we set, took that same kind of plan and brought it forward in, into, you know, 20, 30 years later. And, uh, um, and you know, we had such this, we had like a, we had less than a week to really prepare for that. Uh, we had one day, one practice a day for like five practices. And then I think we had eight practices going into the Southeast Asian games. But, you know, it was a different level of competition. You know, we knew the competition wasn't going to be able to compete with us, and uh, um, but it was it was so much fun to coach June Mar and and Chris Ross, and, you know, the San Miguel guys, and Matthew Wright, and and all those guys that uh, Vic Manuel. You know, it was just a real treat to to get to know those guys on an intimate level. 
uh, see them in the locker room, see them at halftime, see them do their pregame thing, you know, have them looking at me while I'm talking about the game plan. It was just a big thrill. And I know in the big scheme of things, it wasn't a big thing because we mm-hmm. were supposed to go out and win. But uh, I tell you, I had a lot of nervous moments. I don't know why, looking back. <laughs> before those games started, I was running to the bathroom and my stomach was turning. And, and uh, But, you know, our guys were just too good. And, uh, and, and looking back on the experience, it was just awesome. One of the best, funnest times I ever had. It, it really helps when you win, you know. Mm-hmm. It really, it really helps when you win by 30 points every night. <laughs> <laughs> it was in front fun of, for us to watch, too. Yeah. In front of a home crowd, too. Yeah, yeah. in front, front of the home, home crowd. crowd as well. So, and it meant a lot. It meant a lot to, to me to get have another opportunity to do that, uh, to have some success after the failure that we had in, uh, in the Centennial team. I didn't, I didn't have to deal with a JoJo in, in the Centennial team. <laughs> <laughs> there was no pressure because we were winning every game by 30 points, so we could play every, everybody. was like, oh, I don't care if I play or not because they, <laughs> they knew that we were going to go out there and beat everybody. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Ellie, so, Ellie wasn't going to yeah. complain. Ellie wasn't going to complain. You had to uh, play that. In fact, I think there was one well, game I where – I did yeah. take out uh, two you know, players from the team. I, mean, I yes, cut yes. the two, uh, two Enamor players. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Scotty and, and Art. Mm-hmm. It was really, really tough. Yeah. You know, but I, I went into the. I was a little bit smarter this time because I knew that happened to JoJo in the past. When I came in with the Enever players, I explained the whole situation to them. I said, "There's a chance you may not make the team." I said, "But I'm, I need you to be my coaches. I need you to be my coaches on the floor. I need you to be the guy that's going to teach this, help me teach this system. And that's your your main thrust. It's not going to be playing and winning." It's going to be that thrust of going out there and coaching. And that's something I didn't communicate to my Alaska players. Uh, and, and that might have changed things a little bit more. It might have opened, every, opened everybody's eyes a little bit more. So when I told Scotty and, uh, and Art that they weren't going to make the team, they were okay with it. They were really, really, really good about it. And they were the two young guys on the team anyway. So it was, it was, it was more logical to let them uh, go. But I, it was easier – telling them than having to turn around and tell two San Miguel players or, you know, two talking text players or something like that, mm-hmm. that I don't really have a relationship with mm-hmm. that, Hey, you're not good enough to be on this team, you know? And that wasn't the point of my never players. It wasn't about being good enough or bad. It was really about the knowledge and the teachability. So, and they understood that. So it was, it made that whole situation so much, so much easier and better. I wish I'd been smarter when I was younger. I would have done that uh, earlier in 1998 but then you guys have nothing to talk about Jojo, so. yeah. yeah that was our number one article last week very pleased thank you not no, I was kidding. I wasn't pleased with it. But I mean, that, that's, that's reporting. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. I've never been pleased with everything that's ever been written. But it was, it was a little painful, but you know, I got over it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we were also surprised by jo- uh, Jojo's answer. Uh, yeah, what, what the well, things that, he said that during was, that. that was so. Jojo and my relationship. Jojo and I, were, we butted heads all the way through mm-hmm. our careers mm-hmm. together. And he was a... And that's what made him such a tremendous leader. He had that great strength of, of 
you know, personal personality. He was, he's a very strong minded, very strong talking uh, person. And he, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. He talks uh, uh, brutally, honestly. I mean, he will never not let you know what he thinks. And again, that's a, the, the, the qualities of a great leader, especially in basketball. And uh, he was our unquestioned leader throughout that whole time. And, and because he was a leader and I was a leader, we kind of butted heads in each other all the time because he had very strong opinions of how things should be done. And I obviously had strong things and, and uh, we butted heads and screamed and yelled at each other a number of times. And, and, but we always got through it. He didn't hold the grudge. I didn't know. He's, he didn't hold a grudge for too long. Obviously, he held that fun for a while. But, uh, you know, we, we got past it. And, you know, winning and, and doing uh, playing the game the right way was more important to us, uh, ultimately. So we always eventually got along. I mean, it was one of those, uh, like a brother, you, 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 you know, you, the love-hate relationship that you have. Uh, but ultimately, you're, you're always going to love him. And uh, so, you know, without JoJo, again, like Sean, I wouldn't be here right now. Okay. Well, I think that so wraps take it up. that, JoJo. <laughs> 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 oh, wait. Charlie's lagged. All right. Yeah. Okay. No. No. Well, Charlie's frozen. No, I have nothing further. I just want to say thank you, Coach Tim. It's always a, a pleasure talking to you, and we learn so much every time. Even if we've known each other for decades, it's always great to hear new stories from you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's 30 years and counting in the league right now, so right. You know, got a lot and to we've, talk We've about. been following you from the start. so Yeah, a lot of stories, so it's fun to get them out there. It really is. I enjoy your, you guys calling me and asking me. It's fun to talk. Thanks a lot, Coach. We appreciate you. it as well. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. We're going to have okay. you again soon. I'll get sure. in touch with you once again. Okay. Thanks to everyone who's uh, watching on FB Live for joining us. And uh, that's Coach Tim Cohn. 22 championships, guys. All right. All right. Tim. Yeah, thank you, everybody, right, for listening. Okay. So, All I'll, the best, guys. I'll, I'll be Bye. ending the uh, meeting right now. Okay. okay. Everyone stay safe. All right. Stay Bye -bye. safe. Bye-bye. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. That concludes this episode of An Eternity of Basketball. As a reminder, for this show and other shows like it, as well as projects like it, go to globallyballing.com, as well as follow Globally Ballin on all social media, including facebook.com slash globallyballin, twitter at globallyballin, and instagram at globallyballinofficial. If there is someone that you would like to hear from on this show, send us a message on any of our social media platform. Your patronage is truly a blessing. Stay safe and tune in next time for another episode of An Eternity of Basketball. Thank you.